I think it's fair to say that humanity is facing unprecedented challenges. Of course, this virus is dominating the headlines. It is upending everyday life in a way that we have not seen in our lifetime. Of course, people are scared. People are frightened. Markets are plummeting. As parents of, uh, thank God, six children, we know the schools are closed. The kids are home. And, of course, this ripples all over society. You go to the store and can't buy toilet paper or bottled water. And everyone is uncertain. And there's intense rumor mills spinning out all kinds of conspiracy theories and projections. And everyone's worried what's going to be with their job with their business, with their income, with their health, with their own personal health, the health of people that they love. It's a very uncertain, chaotic, frenzied, and frankly, frightening time. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to examine maybe a Torah angle of this subject. And I think the way I'm going to structure it is that we're going to start from the more conceptual aspects of plagues, of quarantines, of lessons that maybe we could draw from this time and this experience that we are going through together collectively as, as a species and kind of move from the conceptual to the practical. And the most basic insight I think that I want to convey is that in Torah, we're trained that when something happens to us, It's a message from God. We talk about this virus as this kind of venom or poison or infiltrator, this agent that's wreaking havoc in the world around us. But we are trained to view this virus as an agent of God. Almost as if the Almighty is taking this agent, sending it to the world, taking this virus, sending it to the world, making it influence everyone to try to send a message. And therefore, I think our duty is to try to accept the message, try to absorb the message, try to decipher and decrypt the message and try to figure out what's the lesson for us, what do we need to take away, what is the message that the Almighty is sending us and how are we supposed to act now, thanks to this new message. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to analyze plagues and quarantines and lockdowns in Torah literature to see what is the message that the Torah presents to us in the event of a plague or a sequestration or a lockdown or a quarantine. And by way of introduction, I want to examine the first I would say quarantine, maybe that's not a great word, but the first sequestering on record, namely what happened in the book of Genesis with Noah in the episode of the flood. So we all know the story. People, humanity starts to devolve and there's one righteous person, Noah and his family, his three sons and his wife and his three daughters-in-law. And he spends many decades building this gargantuan boat, the ark, and it starts raining and there is a deluge and the world is destroyed while Noah and his family, they find refuge. They 
finds salvation in the ark, and the world around him is destroyed. So I want to examine this story and see what our sages tell us about the world, the society of Noah, and how there is an intimate relationship between the plague, so to speak, the destruction of the world around him, and the attitude, if you will, of Noah and his family in the ark, in the refuge, shall we say, in the quarantine. So we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, Vatishaches ha'aretz, the earth became corrupt before God, the earth was filled with lawlessness, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for every flesh had corrupted their path upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, the world is filled with theft because of them, and behold, I'm going to destroy the earth. So this is the setup of the flood story and of the concurrent story, which is Noah being saved in the refuge of the ark. So I want to examine what Rashi says on this story, on these three verses. Vatishaches ha'aretz, the earth became corrupt. Of course, the, the Torah or the words of the Torah are a little bit ambiguous as to what is the nature of this Corruption. Just says they became corrupt. Well, what does that exactly mean? So Rashi tells us that it means two things. Number one, erva. Erva means uh, sexual deviancy. And number two, avodazara, which means idolatry. And Rashi brings scriptural evidence that this word, vatishachets, that the land became corrupt. The word corrupt in this context is a reference to, to those sins, sins of, of sexual deviancy and sins of avodazara of idolatry. And then the verse concludes, chamas, that the world was filled with chamas, with lawlessness. What does that mean? Says Rashi, gezel, theft. So what our sages are doing, they're identifying the three sins that caused the destruction of the generation of the flood. And again, they are sexual sins, idolatry, and theft. And the verse goes on to say, uh, Rashi goes on to explain that all flesh was corrupted. What does it mean all flesh? It wasn't only humans. It was also animals. Animals also have flesh. And therefore, the corruption was so pervasive that the effects actually rippled out and cascaded outward and affected the animals as well. And finally, God says to Noah, you come and you're going to build the ark because I'm destroying the world around us. And there's the obvious question. Wait a minute. If Noah's righteous and he's not sinful and the people around him are sinful and therefore they're going to be destroyed... Why does Noah need to build the ark? After all, the people that are sinners, the people that have done these various sins, they're the ones who are going to get punished. Noah's righteous, and therefore he should not be subject to any ensuing plague that results of the sins of the sinners around him. He, after all, is righteous. So the answer to that question we find again in in Rashi. Rashi says, Whenever you find, this is according from the Midrash from the Sages, whenever you find sexual deviancy and idolatry, 
a plague descends upon the world and kills both good people and bad people. It kills both righteous people and wicked people. It kills the tzaddikim and it kills the sinners. It's totally indiscriminate. And therefore, yes, Noah, you're righteous. If the whole world was like you, there wouldn't be a plague at all. But because there is this plague of an indiscriminate nature, therefore, you are liable to die alongside everyone else. And therefore, you have to build the ark as a way of saving yourself. Amazing idea here that we discover here in the very first example that we have recorded of a of a plague and of a quarantine, if you will, is that Rashi tells us, quoting from their sages, that under certain conditions, the Almighty is going to unleash a plague whose essence, whose nature is that it's indiscriminate. It doesn't differentiate between the righteous, between the wicked, between Noah and Noah's sinful neighbor. They are all equally liable to be swept away by the flood. And therefore, Noah, you are righteous. You have to carve out some other refuge because if you're around everyone else, you're equally liable to be put down, so to speak, to be swept away by this plague. So it's interesting. We find here a source to the idea of a plague that that, that affects everyone and, again, is indiscriminate and does not differentiate between Noah and everyone else. And therefore, Noah has to be sequestered, has to be quarantined in the ark. So again, what we're discovering here, just by way of a diagnosis, the very first plague in the Torah that we have a record of, our sages give us three distinct sins that caused it to be unleashed. Again, there's sexual deviancy, idolatry, and theft. And also we're given the nature of this plague that it is indiscriminate, it kills all, it would have killed Noah and his family even though they are on their own righteous if they were not quarantined in the ark. Now, I think I want to interject with a question before we get on to the next subject, so to speak, the remedial aspect of what Noah and his family did during the quarantine as a way of rectifying the cause of the plague. But I want to interject with an interesting question. There's this teaching of indiscriminate punishment. And the obvious question that we have to ask is, wait a minute, shouldn't there be pinpointed, targeted punishment? Why do we find this idea of indiscriminate punishment? After all, isn't God unleashing the punishment? And shouldn't the punishment be targeted at the people that are deserving of it? Rashi reads, wherever you find sexual deviancy, you find indiscriminate plagues. And even though we are told that there's three sins that caused the flood to happen, only one of them was the instigator of the indiscriminate nature of the plague, namely the sexual sins. And the commentaries ask a question, wait a minute, why specifically are the sexual sins the cause of the indiscriminate plagues? Idolatry? Ain't that the worst sin in the world? Isn't that up there, of course, the first two of the Ten Commandments, believe in God and don't do idolatry? How come when you have these three sins, 
we're told specifically about the sexual sins and the adultery and rape and the like, these are the ones that trigger the indiscriminate punishment of a plague that's blind, a plague that attacks everyone equally. That's a question the commentary is asked. So the Maharal, he suggests an answer. He says when someone does idolatry, they are, so to speak, offending God. That's a sin against God. And when God punishes, it's not indiscriminate. It's pinpointed. It's targeted. And therefore, if you have two people doing idolatry, one lives on 10 Main Street and one lives on 12 Main Street. They're neighbors. One does idolatry, the other does not do idolatry. Well, the Almighty is going to pinpoint and target only the sinner and not his neighbor. Whereas the other sins, they're sins of the body, the way he describes it. And therefore, it's outsourced, so to speak. The punishment is outsourced to an angel to go punish the bodies. And therefore, concludes the Maral, the angel, he just sees warm bodies. And a body is a body's body. Can't tell the difference, so to speak, between the sinners and the righteous. That's what the Maharal suggests. I want to give a different answer. I want to suggest that our reproductive abilities, that's our superpower. Man is created in the image of God. There's some sort of overlap between a human and the Almighty. How can we say that? The Almighty's creator of heaven and earth, what have we created? Maybe we could suggest that what allows us to be compared, to be similar to God is the fact that we too could create people. God could create people. And we do, because we also have this God-given ability to reproduce. It's our greatest ability to be special and to be almost godlike. And therefore, of course, there's the balance. Wherever we have our most potential, that's the place where the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, targets us the most fiercely. And therefore, the place where we have the greatest ability to become like God is the place where we have the ability, of course, on the flip side, to descend to the lowest moral strata. The first mitzvah that the Jewish people are given, Abram is told to circumcise. And it's interesting, the very location, the nexus of what makes us special, what makes us like God, we're told, make sure that you consecrate it for God, you use it properly You take what we have that makes us special and unique and powerful and use that for a mitzvah. What happens when people corrupt what makes them unique? When people take their ability to create the greatest legacy that they could possibly create, to really make a stamp on the world, to really disseminate their individuality, when someone does that, it corrupts that. They're taking what makes them unique and different and individual and they're causing that to be commoditized almost, if you will. It it caused them to be undifferentiated as a human. And therefore, there's a tit for tat. We know whenever the Almighty punishes us, it's always going to be reflective of the sin that caused us to be punished. When someone has a sin of this nature, the plague that's unleashed is going to be reflective of that nature. This is a sin where people are discarding, are not properly valuing the ability that makes them unique. And therefore the plague itself is reflective of that 
And it also doesn't recognize people's uniqueness. When someone chooses to disregard the ability that they have to be the most unique thing, to be different than everyone else, to be special, to be like God, when you disregard that, then a plague is unleashed that too is blind and doesn't differentiate between people. So here we have the setup, the setup of the story of Noah. We have a selection of sins, three different kinds of sins that are unleashing a very unique punishment that's really unparalleled in in Jewish philosophy. We, we of course, believe that the Almighty judges everyone in accordance to their behavior. And here we see something unusual, that there's going to be a plague that's indiscriminate, that doesn't differentiate between the righteous and the wicked, and Noah himself is on the chopping block, if not for the fact that he was able to make for himself a way to escape, so to speak, the reaches of the plague and to go into the ark. So we have the cause of the plague, and now we're going to transition to the solution or the remedy. How does Noah and Co., Noah and his family, how do they remedy that? What is their responsibility? What is the work that they need to do? What's necessary for them? What's on their agenda? During the ark, it's going to be exactly targeted at counteracting the causes of the plague themselves. The time of the ark is not just there as a time of salvation. It's a time of rectification. It's a time for them to recognize what brought humanity to this level and to fix the problems and make sure that they never fall into the same trap. So what does Noah and his family, what do they do once they get into the ark? So we read something really interesting in in Rashi. Uh, and Rashi actually mentions this three times throughout the, the narrative of the flood and the ark story. The Almighty tells Noah, go to the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your daughters-in-law. Rashi points out, if you read that verse very quickly, you won't notice anything unusual, but Rashi points out that it separates the husbands from their wives. You and your sons, doesn't say you and your wife, it says you and your sons and your wife and your daughters-in-law. So the men and the women are, are, are the husband's wife are separated. And again, when they actually go in, they go in separately. And then when they leave, the way it's presented, leave you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. So again, the husbands and wives are reunited. And Rashi explains, quoting from the Talmud, that over the course of this entire period of entering the ark, entering the quarantine, so to speak, and throughout the duration of the flood, there's going to be no intercourse in the ark. And as a result, we can we can maybe postulate that if there's going to be some sort of deviancy in uh, in matters of uh, of marital intimacy that caused the flood, they are warned, they are forewarned ahead of time to make sure that there's not, that none of that is going to be there that's going to be present, so to speak, during the ark, during the quarantine itself. That's A. B, what was Noah and his family, what were they busy with for that whole year. So we think, hey, you know, it's a, it's a cruise. You get to spend the whole year. You don't even go to work. You're on this big ship and you have a window to look out and, and to see what's happening around you. It sounds, 
like a dream. But we discover from the sources that actually this was the busiest year in history because Noah, of course, had him and his family but had all the animals with them and he had to feed the animals at regular intervals. And in fact, Rashi actually tells us this is chapter 7, verse 23. It says that Noah, but only Noah, he survived in the flood, him and his family. So Rashi jumps already on the question, what does it mean only Noah? Ach, Noach. So Rashi says what it means is that Noah barely survived. And this is the quote from Rashi. He survived coughing and spitting blood from the hard work, from the toil of feeding the animals that he had with him. And Rashi quotes a second opinion that says that he was once a little bit late in feeding the lion, and the lion took a big swipe at him and caused him to bleed. Now, there's a midrash that says that Abraham met the son of Noah, shame the son of Noah, and asked him, with what merit did you survive the period in the ark? And he answered that the merit was the kindness that we did with all the animals in the ark. For the entire year, we didn't have a regular sleep pattern because there are some animals that eat in the beginning of the night and some in the middle and some during the day. So the whole time, they are feeding all these animals, rushing like like madmen, re- rushing from animal to animal to make sure that every animal is fed its proper amount in its proper time. And only once, and it mentions the story that Noah was late for the line and he was punished right away. So what do we see? We see three sins that the generation was guilty in that caused the flood to happen. And then we see that in the ark, there is this intense focus on fixing those underlying problems. Of course, idolatry. I don't imagine there was much idolatry in the ark because this miracle, of course, is going to dispel any notions of idolatry. So the experience itself was tremendously faith-building for Noah and his family. And then you have the sexual misdeeds. And then we have, again, a period of protracted abstinence from Noah and his family. And finally, we have the sin of theft, of not having concern of someone else's property, of not worrying about what someone else is going to feel when they lose their stuff. Theft, of course, is a manifestation of selfishness and lack of kindness. And now we have a whole year that all of surviving humanity is doing nothing but kindness for an entire year. Kindness to the degree that they're not even sleeping, that they have, they, they, they're suffering tremendously because of how busy they are doing kindness with the charges that they have. And again, this I think shows us, at least by way of introduction, it shows us how the Torah views plagues in general and what is the responsibility of people who are subject to a plague and are trying to save themselves, what ought to be their focus during the time when they're on lockdown, when they're being quarantined, so to speak, their responsibility is to try to identify and isolate the cause of that plague and try to remedy it by ensuring that their behavior is going to be fixing, addressing the problem that precipitated that particular plague.
I want to move on now to the next example of a quarantine that we have in the Torah. And that is on the night on the doorstep of the Exodus. The Jewish people have spent several hundred years in Egypt. Over the past year, the final year of their stay in Egypt, they had the miraculous ten plagues. And now it's time for the final plague, the death of the firstborn, and we're going to leave, we're going to abscond from Egypt, and we're going to go to Israel. Several days before that day, of course, that we memorialize and we try to relive every Pesach, the nation is told to go get for themselves a sheep and tie to their bed, and this sheep they're going to slaughter, and they're going to roast and going to eat it that night. And then they're told, this is chapter 12, verse 22 of Exodus, to take a mixture, dunk it into the blood, and put it all over their doorpost, and then lock the door and not to leave their home till the morning. So again, lockdown, you are subject to a curfew, you can't leave your home, but you do some really unusual things that night that you covered your doorpost in the blood of the animal that you sacrificed and you're consuming that night. Why must the nation be homebound, be on lockdown, not leave their home for that night? So Rashi quotes from the Talmud, the very same idea that we saw by the time of the flood, by the plague of the flood. Me'achar shenitna reshus lemashchis lechabel. After it was given permission to the decimator to destroy, he does not differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. Again, we have a contrast. We have the Egyptians. They're the oppressors. They've been tormenting and punishing and subjecting and enslaving the nation for centuries. And we have the poor Jewish people, the nation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to be saved. And something is going to be unleashed this night that's going to be blind to seeing the difference between these and these, between the Egyptians and their Jewish subjects. Again, we see the same idea of, on one hand, a plague, on the other hand, a quarantine, because the nature of the plague is not to differentiate between the Jews and the Egyptians, between the righteous and the wicked. I think it's interesting to look at what the Jewish people did with putting the blood on their doorpost. They're getting ready to escape. They're packed up. They've borrowed, borrowed in quotation marks, gold and jewels and silver and valuables from their Egyptian neighbors. They're eating the pastoral offering. It's got to be roasted. It can't be cooked. This is the night of the Exodus. This is the night that precisely at midnight, all the firstborn are going to die. What do they do? They put the blood on their doorpost. They take their determination and decision to identify as the Jewish nation, and they publicize it. And one of the themes of that discussion is the fact that this animal was worshipped as a deity in Egypt. And the Jewish people, for their duration of time in Egypt, many of them, were indistinguishable from their Egyptian neighbors. They were also idolaters like the Egyptians around them. And now they're told, 
take the animal that you maybe previously had worshipped, slaughter it. Only after you watch it for four days and you really have to ruminate about what you're going to do, take your deity and kill it. And not only that, take the blood of this killed idol of the Egyptians and maybe you and put it on your doorpost so everyone can see it. And moreover, the commentaries point out, you can't cook it. You have to roast it. What's the difference between cooking and roasting? So one of the differences is the fact that when someone in the neighborhood makes a barbecue, when someone's roasting it, everyone could smell it. The Jewish people are told, take the Egyptian god that maybe was your god at one point though, to some degree. Kill it after looking at it for four days. Take the blood and defiantly put it on your doorpost. And then take this sacred animal, this sacred cow, this sacred sheep, and barbecue it so that the whole neighborhood knows exactly what you're doing. How's that for a challenge of what to do during your quarantine? Again, we have a destruction of an idolatrous nation and society. And we have a way to save yourself, to spare yourself, but that demands a certain degree of self-sacrifice. It demands putting yourself out there. It demands that you kill your deities, kill your lowercase g god in a public fashion. Let everyone know about it. Let everyone know exactly what you do it. Let them smell it. Publicize the blood. Now, it is interesting that this particular quarantine immediately preceded the redemption. Now, of course, none of us are prophets. In fact, I always like to say I work for a non-profit organization. Every donation is tax exempt. We're not prophets, and we don't know the future. And my grandfather wrote that unless you are a prophet, you cannot point to any event or any trend and say, okay, this is a harbinger of Messiah. You can't do that. We don't do that. We have to make a very clear caveat and disclaimer about that. But I did see that the commentators, and this is one of the themes that is well known in in, in Jewish philosophy, the commentators note that whatever happened in Egypt is a template for all future redemptions. So whatever we see when we study the Exodus, it's not just studying history, It's also presenting or teaching us about the template, the blueprint of redemptions going forward. Isn't it interesting that immediately preceding the redemption, there was a universal quarantine for the Jewish people? When I thought of this, I told my wife, it's time for us to book flights to Israel for Pesach. Because I always tell my children the very first thing you do when you hear the Mashiach comes, Messiah arrives, the very first thing you do is you got to put flights to Israel for Pesach because after all, once the temple's rebuilt, you need to go to the pilgrimage, you need to ascend, as it's called, to Jerusalem, to the temple, three times a year, and every Jew is mandated to participate in this Pesach celebration. And therefore, you hear Mashiach arrives, before you tweet about it, before you send that, share it on WhatsApp, before... You type on Facebook. Before you make a phone call, you go right away to the computer and you right away book your flights. Make sure you have those flights. That's what I always tell my kids. So I told Chai, I said, well, maybe something's happening. And maybe, you know, airlines now are giving 
longer grace periods to cancel flights, maybe what we should do is we should put flights to Israel for Pesach. And Chai said, you know what, that's a great idea. But then someone says, well, do you really think that if Messiah arrives, we're going to have a hard time finding flights? And then I posited, you know, after all, all the airlines are shut down. All their capacity is being sidelined. Maybe what's actually happening is all that capacity is being reserved to send all the Jews to Israel for Pesach. I haven't yet booked the flights, but that was just some of the ideas that we have or that I had that, you know, when we are told that the redemption is going to be preceded by a quarantine and we're undergoing uh, unprecedented lockdowns, it gives you something to think about. Again, I want to make it clear, don't misrepresent what I'm saying. I don't know when Mashiach is coming. I don't know when Messiah is, is coming. And I don't know what, I don't know anything. But I just know what I shared with you that who knows, maybe there is something there that associates quarantines with redemption. But I think it's interesting to look at what the Jews did. They weren't scared about who they are. They weren't scared about what they stand for. They took their former deities, they grilled them, and they publicized what they did. I heard a very interesting idea this past weekend, this past Shabbos, from my colleague, Rabbi Busco. He said an analogy to circus elephants. How do you train a circus elephant? These elephants are gargantuan. They're massive, all muscle. If they get mad, they could kill the whole building. They can knock down the whole building. And you want him, you know, dancing or balancing on one leg. How do you train an elephant to behave in the way that you tell them? So this is what he said. I didn't, I didn't Google it, but I, I trust him. He says what they do is like this. When the baby elephant is really young, still strong, but not as strong as they're going to get, they take a chain and they affix it to the elephant's leg and they put a stake deep into the ground and therefore the elephant tries to walk around, tries to reach stuff and it's tugged back and it tries harder and it can't release itself from its chain. And therefore, even though it grows up, it becomes conditioned, it becomes acculturated, it becomes accustomed that whenever it feels something tugging on its leg, in its head, you can't move it. It's too hard to move. It's been trained. It's been reared. That when you when you feel that chain on your leg, when you feel a little tug on your leg, that's it. Your strength cannot overcome that obstacle. And even as it gets bigger and stronger, it's just reflex gets trained that when you feel a little tug on your leg, you could go no further. And what my colleague was saying is that that is what slavery is. Slavery is when someone cannot fathom themselves being able to overcome or being able to view themselves in a different way that they could grow and they could change and they could overcome the limitations that they have. And of course, Pesach, the festival of Pesach that we're about to experience, and of course, that we're talking about over here in the context of plagues, Pesach is all about freedom from bondage. We were slaves and we went free. 
And of course, our sages tell us that this is not just a historical event, it's also a time to try to free ourselves from all the things that are enslaving us, from all the limitations that we create for ourselves. And I think when we look about how, when we, when we witness, when we examine how the Jewish people freed themselves from their bondage, from their servitude enslavement to the Egyptian deities, I think it's a good lesson for us as well. We are not pigeonholed to be the same person that we always were. Like the Jews in quarantine, they made a decision and their decision was to change. Their decision was we can become different, bigger people than our Egyptian neighbors. We can take their deities and slaughter it fearlessly. We can have pride in what we're doing and we can display it for all to see. I think that's another angle to what is the proper attitude during a quarantine, during a lockdown, and that is not only to try to change yourself, but to kind of clinch it by being changed to the degree that you're even proud to showcase that to the world. You're not scared of what the Egyptians think. Who cares about the Egyptians? We care about the Almighty and what we stand for, and we're even willing to run the risk, so to speak, of taking our reputation and altering it for all to see and saying, okay, I'm proud of, of what I stand for. Look what I have my doorpost and smell what is grilling on the barbecue. Moving on to the next set of episodes on the Torah, talk about plagues and how to avoid them. I want to go to a few weeks ago we read in Parsha's Kisisa. This is chapter 30. And in this Parsha, there are mentions of two plagues. And one of them is how to avoid plagues, and one of them is an actual plague. So the parsha begins with an instruction that when the Jewish people are counted, when there's a census, it's not done by lining up the Jews and counting them as people. Instead, each one of them makes a donation of a coin, or a half a, a half a shekel coin, and the coins serve as a proxy for the people. You count them at the coins, and then you know the amount of people. But the verse quite interestingly says, when you count the Jewish people according to the numbers, every man shall give an atonement for his soul to God when counting them, i.e. Everyone, every man should give a donation to the temple coffers as an atonement for their soul while counting them. And there will not be a plague when counting them. And Rashi says that in the event that the Jewish people are counted by people, not by this proxy method of coins, there will be a plague. And it quotes a story in the times of David, in the book of Samuel, where the people were counted and there was a plague. So it's a really interesting idea here, the commentaries I'll talk about, that we're told that the methods through which we count people, that matters. And if we count them by people, there's going to be a plague. And if we count them by coins, there's not going to be a plague. Why, if we count by people, is it going to cause a plague to happen. So the commentary suggests that when I make a list of people and I just count them without discriminating at all, in effect what I'm doing is I am equalizing all the people. I am not differentiating between people. Instead, what we do is we take the coins and the coins are actually used for the daily sacrifices 
in the Temple of the Tabernacle. And those coins are going to be used instead of the people. I think the idea here is going to follow along this line. As we mentioned, the essence of a plague is when people are not differentiated. The righteous, the wicked, they're equally susceptible to the plague. And therefore, if we do activities that don't differentiate with people, don't treat people as individuals, just as numbers, as statistics, then we are likely to engender a plague. I think it's interesting here. We have these coins. Coins are valuable. And those coins are used to buy the animals for the sacrifices in the temple and in the tabernacle. What that means is that we recognize that every individual is valuable and every individual is needed to create a relationship between the Jewish people and God. Sacrifice, of course, create a relationship between us and God. And therefore, it's interesting, we see here the same theme. A plague is when people are not differentiated. And the way to avoid a plague, a solution, if you will, is to see individuals as unique entities, as people of worth, and not only that, people that are necessary to foster a, a relationship between us and God. In fact, the parsha begins, or the verse begins, ki si sa, when you shall uplift the people, i.e. to count them, but it's not described as counting, it's described as uplifting. When you uplift every individual and realize their value, then people are unique, people are individual, and the idea of a play that doesn't recognize the uniqueness of people, that doesn't recognize the individuality of each person, that is going to be avoided. So that's just, again, along these same lines of what the essence of a plague is and how to avoid it. And then I want to go through three distinct plagues that struck our nation. In the aftermath of the golden calf in Exodus, of course, the golden calf is about idolatry. After the golden calf happened, there was a plague. In the aftermath of the Korach rebellion, Korach was Moshe's first cousin, and he thought that he was worthy to lead the nation and not Moshe. So that's almost like theft. He wanted to steal. He wanted to take away unjustly, unlawfully, the stature of Moshe. And that also resulted in a plague. And then in the aftermath of the Moabite women, this is when Bilaam is hired to go curse the Jewish people. Ultimately, the curses fall flat, but he gives the advice to Balak to go conscript Moabite women to go sin with the Jewish people. And the commentaries explain that that wasn't just about sexual misconduct. It was also about idolatry. That also resulted in a plague that caused 24,000 victims, 24,000 dead. So it's interesting. The three plagues that struck our nation in the story of the Torah, they are precisely for the same sins that Noah's flood or the flood of of the Noah story caused. We said it was because of sexual sins, because of idolatry, and because of theft. And what do we have? Aftermath of the golden calf, golden calf is idolatry. Korach rebellion is about theft. Moabite women, that story, it's about sexual misconduct. Again, the same three sins that are triggering these plagues that are indiscriminately attacking the nation. Now, I think it's interesting. If you look at what happened in the Korach 
rebellion, the Korach mutiny, the Korach insurrection, and how it was resolved. It's a very interesting episode of how it was resolved. The verse says that Korach and his family were swallowed up by this magical sinkhole. And after that happened, the people started complaining. This is chapter 17 of the book of Numbers, and this is verse 6. The entire assembly of Israel began to complain against Moshe and Aaron, telling them, you have killed the people, the nation of God. And what happened afterwards? God tells Moshe, get away from this nation, from this assembly. I'm going to destroy them in an instant. And a plague is unleashed. And Moshe tells Aaron, grab a fire pan, put incense on it, and quickly offer, Torah, quickly offer incense to go save the people. So Aaron starts running, and he runs amid, amid the nation, and the plague has already begun, and people are dying indiscriminately, and he goes precisely at the point where the plague is happening. On one side, he had the people that are dead already. On the other side, he people that are living. And he starts offering this incense offering, and the plague stops. 14,700 dead. And the plague stops thanks to the Ketoras, thanks to the offering of the incense. Now, Rashi tells us the backstory of this revelation. How did Moshe know that the way to stop the plague was via the incense? And he tells us that the angels, when Moshe came to heaven and Moshe got the Torah, initially the angels were quite quite hostile to Moshe. But ultimately, they kind of liked him. And each angel gave Moshe a gift. What did the angel of death give Moshe? He gave him an insight that plagues are stopped by Ketoras. Plagues are stopped by the incense offering. And in fact, the sages record a dialogue. Aaron comes to the plague site and he starts offering the incense, and the angel's like, no, what are you doing? You're stopping me. I, I need to continue. Go killing everyone. And Aaron says, well, Moshe sent me over here to go stop the plague. And the angel of death says, well, God sent me to go unleash this plague. And therefore, my sender, so to speak, is greater than your sender. So Aaron responds to the angel of death. Well, Moshe wouldn't tell me to do this unless God told him to send me. And therefore, I'm coming from God as well. And you know what? If we have a question, let's go to God and Moses and have them mediate this dispute. But anyhow, ultimately, the Ketoras, the incense offering, stopped the plague. And this is, of course, the secret that the angel of death gave Moshe when he was in heaven. Now, the question I want to pose is, why is the Ketores, why is that the antidote for plagues? And I want to suggest an answer. The Ketores is a list of 11 ingredients 
actually mentioned in Parsh's piece he saw, a few weeks ago that we read, we read it, about it. Eleven different ingredients that are mixed together and create this incense that are burned on the altar. And the resulting wafting aroma was incredibly beautiful. So much so that Talmud tells us that no one in Jerusalem would ever to need to wear any perfume because the smell, the intense aroma of the Ketores made everything smell beautifully. The goats of Jericho were sneezing as a result of the beautiful smell that was happening from Jerusalem. Now, parenthetically, our sages tell us that one of the ingredients, one of the ingredients of the Ketores, the Chalbana, actually had a rancid smell. It smelled terribly. But when it was put together with all the other ingredients, the totality of this cocktail was beautiful. And our sages tell us what that means is that when the Jewish people are praying, when the Jewish people are fasting, well, we cannot disregard, we cannot ignore the sinners. We have to bring the sinners, i.e. the chalbana, i.e. the Jews that don't smell good, so to speak, bring them to join us, and that, and the whole nation has to be, has to be united. The idea is, the Ketores reminds us that every single Jew is valuable. Every single Jew is necessary. Every single Jew is salvageable. Even the Jew that smells bad, so to speak. Even the Chalbana. It's needed for the Ketores. You cannot have a Ketores without the Chalbana. Every Jew is part of this team. Everyone is a necessary individual. The plague happens when we don't recognize that people are individuals. We don't recognize the indispensability of every individual. And the Ketores reminds us of the exact opposite, that even the people that smell terrible have a rancid, putrid, disgusting, terrible smell. Even those people, we need them for the Ketores. Even those people are salvageable. Even those people are necessary. If we don't have the Chalbana, we don't have the Ketores. When someone has that recognition, everyone's needed, everyone's valuable, that the Almighty does not put someone on this on this earth unnecessarily, that is the antidote for the plague. I want to kind of transition to the more practical ways of implementing some of these ideas. Practical things to think about and to work on during this lockdown period. We know that the markets got absolutely hammered. And everyone's 401ks dropped. Everyone's retirement are now suddenly in jeopardy. A lot of people lost a lot of money unless you invested in like Zoom, which apparently went through the roof or other, uh, I guess maybe the grocery stores did well. But anyhow, the economy is really suffering. And of course, the traders and the investors know that this is actually an opportunity. This is a sale. And I'm just trying to figure out where's the bottom of the market you can buy tons of stocks and equities and investments. And once the market rebounds, you'll make a lot of money. That's happening in the markets. But it's also happening in the spiritual markets. Spiritual greatness is on sale. Spiritual greatness, its at, it's at, we're at the bottom. We're at the nadir of 
the spiritual world, things are on sale and there's opportunities for us to achieve greatness on the cheap. I want to tell over some stories that talk about how great people step up in times of epidemics and outbreaks and quarantines and the like. The great Rabbi Israel Salanter, he was one of the greatest Jews of the 19th century. In 1848, in Vilna, in Lithuania, there was a cholera epidemic. And the stories about what he did during this epidemic are absolutely legendary. He himself, again, the great rabbi, what does he know about epidemiology, virology, etc.? He built a hospital with 1,500 beds to be able to treat the infected. He rallied the physicians and made them all work pro bono. He took yeshiva students, 60 of them, and created a task force of people who are there helping the sick, subjecting themselves to potential infection, and helping bury the dead. And in fact, amazingly, not a single one of these 60 people that were in danger in their lives got infected with the disease. And in fact, he gave very severe rulings. He said that if there ever is a health dilemma on Shabbos, you need to desecrate the Shabbos. Don't say, oh, let me find a non-Jewish doctor. Let me, let me look around, find a Gentile. No, because the second you wait a little, the second you tarry, you may lose a soul. And the Talmud is very clear that to desecrate the Shabbos in a time like this is a mitzvah. And to sit around and wait, maybe we'll find a Gentile to do it, is actually a sin that's going to endanger someone else. Before Yom Kippur that year, he hung up signs around the whole town saying that not only may you eat on Yom Kippur, everyone must eat. And in fact, it's pekuch nefesh, it's, it's moral danger. You have to eat this Yom Kippur during this cholera epidemic. And even if you feel fine, you have to, you have to eat. Not only that, he went from shul to shul in Vilna and he made kiddush. He took grapes, he took wine. And made Kiddush on Yom Kippur in these shuls. And the logic behind that is that, you know, if you make a proclamation and you say, let us all eat on Yom Kippur, what are people going to say? Yeah, I feel fine. I'm not going to desecrate Yom Kippur. Let the people that are actually sick, let them desecrate Yom Kippur. Let them, let them eat. But me, I feel fine. And that attitude could be potentially dangerous and people could die. And to overcome this extra piety of the individuals that are going to fast even when they should not fast, he abrogated the fast for the entire community. In addition, the Chazon Ish that I recently did a series on the Jewish History Podcast about, in the 1910s, there was... In the town that he was living in, there was uh, an outbreak. And the burial society, the Chavar Kadisha, they did not want to bury the dead because they were scared of getting infected. Even today, you look at what it's like burying the people who are, God forbid, uh, victims of the coronavirus. These people wearing these full hazmat suits because the body is still, so to speak, is still oozing infection. 
And there was a time that there were Jewish dead and they're piling up and no one's burying them. So the Chazanish himself takes the bodies, puts them on his shoulder and goes to bury them. And this deed was so stunning to people that kind of it woke them up to action. Someone said to him, well, aren't you scared of getting infected? He says to them, of course I'm getting, I'm scared of getting infected. But I'm even more fearful of leaving these Jewish dead, these Jewish corpses without the dignity of a proper burial. These are some stories of some of the great leaders and sages of, of your, of our history, of them stepping up to try to figure out what could they do during the plague, during an outbreak, during an epidemic, or even a pandemic. And I think that's the attitude that we have to ask ourselves. What are the things that we should think about? What are the things that we should focus on? What are the things we should work on to try to do our part in remediating the cause for this outbreak, for this plague, and try to help as many people as we can? Of course, A of this is always got to be keep yourself safe. If you're going to endanger yourself or your family, it's not worth it. Of course. B is try to be helpful. Try to help the people that you can. If there's people who can't go shopping, if you have extra toilet paper, help your neighbors, help your friends, help your community. But what I want to examine is the guidance that our nation received from Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who is widely considered to be the greatest Torah authority alive today. And he wrote a short letter that talks about this illness, this virus, and the three things, in his opinion, that we should work on to make sure that we ourselves are saved and our families, of course, communities are spared, but also that it's going to guard over all of our nation and all the whole world to stop this from doing too much damage. So he points out a very interesting teaching in the Talmud in the book of Arachin on page 15. The Talmud says that we know the Metzorah, someone who is suffering from the affliction of Tsaras, Tsaras is when these discolorations happen in your skin, in, in your clothing, on your home. These conditions result in someone being quarantined outside of the community. And the question the Talmud asks is, why does someone who has saras, why do they have to be quarantined away from everyone else? And the Talmud says that what is the sin that causes saras? Number one amongst that list is Lashon Hara and gossip. Evil talk about other people and gossip. What happens when someone speaks evil about another person? You see that guy? You think he's so righteous? He's really just sanctimonious. You know what that person did? Someone's a gossip mongerer. Someone is always spreading salacious gossip about other people. What they're in effect doing is causing division. Is causing separation. And the more evil talk, the more, the more separation. If you have friends, what could torpedo a friendship? Evil talk, gossip. You think this guy, you know what he actually did? You know what he said? You know what he said about you behind your back? All those things are very destructive. 
for friendships. Friendships are unity. Gossip and Lashon Aram cause disunity, cause separation. What could destroy a marriage? Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara is when you see something evil about the spouses or bad about the spouses or you present the spouses to each other in a negative light and suddenly they're not as fond of each other as they were previously. Unity becomes separation. When someone causes separation in other people, they themselves are liable to be separated, to be quarantined, to be sequestered from other people. Lashon is a cause for quarantine and therefore it is something that we should work on, that we should focus on trying to find the good in every individual, not to speak negatively to other people and that will be a way to protect ourselves from this terrible virus. I want to add, just in in line of the ideal, of the theme that we've kind of strung through all these sources, plagues are about not recognizing the individual greatness and value and worth of every person. Everyone's just a number. Everyone's a statistic. No one really has any value of their own. Lashon Ra is when someone tries to expose the fact that people aren't that great, people aren't that special, people aren't that unique, they don't have that much worth. And therefore, is it a shock that a plague that doesn't differentiate itself and causes division is the result of a shonhara, which again, doesn't value people and causes division. And therefore, instead of trying to find the negative about other people, to try to find the positive about them, try to uplift them, to realize that they are valuable, they foster connection between us and God, the Almighty wants them to, to live and the Almighty does see value in them and therefore we should see value in them as well to try to identify the good, the positive, the valuable and admirable qualities and traits about other people and focus on that instead of the negative traits that invariably all humans suffer. That would be a very useful exercise during this time. That's the first thing he writes. The first thing he writes is that we should reinforce our commitment to not speak about other people, to speak only kindly and positively about other people, and that would be a means to hopefully save ourselves and save our families and save our communities. The next thing he mentioned is humility. Humility to strengthen ourselves in the characteristic of humility. As we know, arrogance, hubris, boastfulness, that is almost attacking God. Because when someone recognizes that God gives them everything that they have, that is a preventative measure. That's a prophylactic against arrogance, against boastfulness. If you realize that you are, everything you've got is a gift from God, well, how could you be boastful on the gift that you have from God? You're only boastful if you don't recognize the origin, so to speak, of your skills and your abilities and your positive traits that you want to lord over other people. And therefore, this time, it's a time of, of introspection and humility to realize that everything we have is from the Almighty. And I want to add, this virus, we think of things as being small. 
So bacteria, small, it's invisible. Virus, small, it's invisible. Turns out that the smallest bacteria is actually larger than the largest virus. Virus is not just small, it's unfathomably small. And look what it's doing to the world around us. It's tiny, but the whole world is now quaking in its sphere, so to speak, of this tiny thing. We're boastful, we're prideful, look at me, says the Almighty. I'm going to send the smallest thing, infinitesimally small, smaller than the bacteria, the smallest microbe that, that we know of, and that's going to cause tremendous havoc in the world that you think you're so secure in. And in fact, there is a precedent for this in the Talmud. The Talmud talks about the animal called a yitush, or the being called yitush. The Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, asks the question, why was Adam, why was humanity created on day six? After all, maybe it should be created on day one. It's so important. Humans really are really important, really valuable. Why does the Almighty create everything else and then create Adam on day six after everything else has been created? And the Talmud gives four different answers to that question. And one of the answers is that this is a means to achieve humility. Because in case man, in case Adam ever gets too boastful, you tell him, Yitush Kidamcha. The Yitush, the small, tiny animal, which may be a fly, maybe a virus, it's not so clear. That came before you. How could you possibly be boastful? And there's a very long narrative in the Talmud, the book of Gittin, that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. And it talks about Titus. Titus was the son of Vespasian. Vespasian starts the siege of Jerusalem, but he gets nominated to become the emperor, so he hands off the siege to his son, Titus, and he finishes the siege and destruction of the temple. Ultimately, he also becomes an emperor and he succeeds his father. But the Talmud tells that after the temple is destroyed, Titus is, of course, on top of the world. He feels invincible. And once he's traveling at the sea and this big wave comes to try to threaten to drown him. And Titus goes on to say, God, the God of Israel, only has power in water. Pharaoh started up with God and he drowned Pharaoh in the water. Of course, by splitting the sea, the Egyptians are drowned. Sisra, he rose up against God and God drowned him in the water. So too, I attacked God, so to speak. And God is now attacking me with water. That's the only arrow in the Almighty's quiver. It's only water. And then he makes this proposal to God. If you're so powerful, don't attack me in the sea. Attack me on dry land. So the Talmud goes on to say that a heavenly voice emanated and said, Russia ben Russia, wicked one, the son of a wicked one. You're the son of Asav, the wicked. You're just like Asav. And you think I need the water to stop you? I have a tiny creature. It's called a Yitush. And I'm going to use it to destroy you. And the Talmud tells us that what happened was this Yitush, this gnat or fly or whatever it was, entered his nostril and began picking at the brain of Titus for seven years. So he has this small animal 
in his head, gnawing away at his brains. And then once he passes a blacksmith shop. And the blacksmith is smashing the hammer on the anvil. And this Yitush gets a little scared and it stops. So he finally finds a solution to his problem. So he starts hiring blacksmiths to go hammer away and to stop the drilling on his head. And for 30 days, he has this blacksmith smashing 24-7 and the Yitush is held at bay. But what happens after 30 days? The Yitush becomes accustomed to the sound of the blacksmith and it continues to gnaw away at his brain. Finally, Titus died and they did an autopsy. And the Talmud says that this tiny Yitush had grown into the size of a big bird. And it talks about the size of this bird and what it was made out of. And essentially, it's describing this tiny little thing that entered Titus and became this, this, it overtook him. It commandeered him internally and it destroyed him. This is a response to his hubris and to his challenge to God, if you really want to attack me, come attack me. Mike says, okay, I'll, I'll deploy this smallest of creatures, this Yitush. I have a suspicion that this Yitush is actually a virus because the way it's described in the Talmud is that it takes stuff in but doesn't expel stuff out. And we know that the virus does not actually uh, it doesn't have this mitosis. It doesn't split like normal or like regular organisms. It just commandeers the cells. It's like a parasite, but nothing which spits out replicas of itself. And again, we see that the pathology of the virus is something which exposes human fragility and human fallibility. You know, we think that we've got it all. And this really tiny thing, the tiniest of microbes, comes and totally upends our world. And I think the third thing that Rabbi Kanievsky writes is the idea of letting others win, yielding to others. And I think the idea of that is that when someone is allowing others to win, when someone's not selfish, they recognize that we're really interconnected. There's a certain degree of interdependence. Maybe we can suggest that the virus, after all, the virus reminds us, the lesson that it's trying to tell us is that all of humanity and certainly all the Jewish people, we're like one being. And if I'm sick, God forbid, I could convey that to you even if we're not really, we don't realize that we're connected, but the virus is reminding us that we're all connected. And if we're all really connected, then me yielding to someone else, letting them win is not really a loss for me. And I want to muse a little bit about some of the other thoughts I had with respect to what's happening in the world around us. Should shuls stay open or should they close? So I find that there's been different attitudes in various different communities, various different synagogues. Some of them, well, again, if the state says it's not okay to have a gathering, that's one thing. But if the state says it's okay, provide the sufficient social distancing and the like, Everyone washes their hands and make sure that people stay of, of a safe distance away from each other. Should the shul stay open or should they close? So I've seen 
some shuls that have this overabundance of caution, and even if the state says it's okay to not have services, to not have shul. Others say, let's have shul, but let's make sure that we maintain the social distancing. So in our community, some of the shuls remained open, and some of them closed. And incidentally, one of the shuls that I participated in their services, they had davening outside, they had the prayer outside in the backyard to just to just to reinforce the social distancing. Anyhow, one of the neighbors, we have a non-Jewish neighbor who is not so happy about the, the prayers outside, the middle of the prayer Friday night, he opens his window and starts barking at the crowd and says, get inside. Do you want me to pull out my boombox and start playing loud music over here? Like middle of davening, is everyone just hustled inside. But I remember thinking, you know, what a beautiful time to be alive. It used to be that the Gentiles said, you can't go to shul. And now they're saying, you have to go to shul. You have to go inside. But anyhow, it's just an interesting time to think about that the shuls are closed. Many of them are closed. Uh, many of them are shuttered. Even the ones that are open are not a, at full capacity. And then you have the yeshivos that are closed. And it made me think of the curse of Bilam. Of course, in the book of Numbers, we read, Bilam is hired to go curse the Jewish people. And the Talmud says that if you examine his blessings that he was forced to give, you can discover what the opposite intent was, what was his plan to curse, and he was forced to give the opposite of that, to give a blessing. So, for example, he starts off, Matovu Yaakov, how goodly are your tents, Jacob. He's blessing the tents of the Jewish people, the synagogues and the halls of study. His plan was to curse the Jewish people. We shouldn't have a shul. We shouldn't have a, a hall of study-based marriage. And he was forced to give a blessing that they will always have them. Then he gives a list of all the blessings that he gave and what was the opposite intent, what was his plan to go curse the Jewish people. The Talmud concludes, this is the book of Sanhedrin, page 105b, all of his blessings ultimately reverted back to being curses with the exception of one of them. There was one blessing that he gave. He had intended to make, make a curse, but it was forced to do a blessing. There was one blessing that he was that he gave that never reverted back to being a curse. And that is the first one, Matovu Ahalecha Yaakov. You'll always have halls of study and prayer amongst the Jewish people. So it made me thinking, are we making a terrible mistake? Are we making a terrible mistake by closing the shul? If the Talmud says that the shuls and the yeshivos and the batamid midrash will never close, and that's a promise, the curse was permanently turned into a blessing, are we making a huge blunder by closing? That was my initial thought. And then I was maybe trying to rationalize the decisions Again, not any specific decisions, but the collective decisions of, of, of many different shuls that closed all over the world. Maybe the rationale is as follows. Just like Rabbi Ezra Salanter, when he made this rule that no one's allowed to fast in Yom Kippur, it wasn't because everyone was on the verge of dying, but many people were. And unless it was this blanket ruling, people are going to die. I'm thinking there's a lot of elderly people that come to shul. 
people that are squarely in the danger zone of contracting the disease and potentially dying. And unless we close the whole shul, they're going to show up. Many of them will show up. And that is a risk that we cannot bear. That was my rationale. But ultimately, as I thought about it, I was thinking that no, the Talmud's clear. This curse of Bilam was turned into a permanent blessing. And therefore, there is a permanent blessing that's associated with the shuls. And of course, when they're open, the blessing is obvious. Our job now, during these very trying times, is to try to figure out what is the blessing in the temporary closure of the shuls. And I think that's the answer we have to have. What can we do during this very unusual period to try to say, I'm going to make a blessing out of the curse, so to speak, that appears to be a curse, but really is a blessing. I had an interesting thought as well. There was a study done in 2015, very interesting study. I'm very fond of this study. It was done in England. So England has a very complicated network of, of, of subways in London. And certain portions of the tube, as it's called, have had various strikes and they've closed various routes of the very labyrinthine network of the London underground. So once there was a tube strike and the study was how even though people's daily commutes were upended, Ultimately, the tube strike saved time for the commuters that uh, they saved more time than they would have if the tube did not go on strike. Why? The rationale is like this. Because it's such a complicated system that not everyone was necessarily taking the more efficient route to their destination. And because everyone was forced to experiment to try new routes during this tube strike, the certain parts of the network were closed, a small percentage of people actually found that their new route was more optimized, was faster, and then once the tube strike ended, they just kept their new route, and therefore the net result was that people saved time and didn't lose time. That was this study. And the abstract reads, this is a quote, we argue that the information produced by the strike improved network efficiency. Instead, this is the takeaway line. Individuals seem to under-experiment in normal times as a result of which constraints can be welfare-improving. This is the idea that I want to ha- share. This is not normal times that we're living in. This is very unusual times. People are homebound. People are working from home. People are studying from home. People are praying from home. People are with their children at home. Normally, the kids are in school. They're in camp. They're away. It's very unusual times. But I think there is the silver lining just on a very personal level for each individual. Of course, there's a lot of uh, sadness, a lot of of illness, and a lot of people suffering. But I think it's also a time that we could experiment and try to find new ways to improve the efficiency of our life. Of course – our regular life, but certainly our spiritual life, to find different ways that we can connect to God, to Torah, 
to mitzvos, to study in ways that maybe will linger once things go back to normal. That's just an open-ended idea that everyone should try to figure out ways that they can experiment to try to find something that normally they wouldn't have even tested, but maybe something that they could experiment with now and maybe will stay with them as things as things uh, normalize. I want to also share a personal thought. I shared this with my colleagues here at Torch. We ran our campaign, our fundraising campaign, our annual fundraising campaign the first week in March. And we know the listeners, the podcast listeners and the participants in the class, everyone was so generous in helping make the, make the campaign a success. But we snuck in this campaign the last week, I think before it would have been untenable to do it. You know, today, the environment that we're in today, it's impossible to try to do a fundraising campaign today. Everyone is, everyone's life has been so changed and altered and people's finances are so un, 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 uncertain. This is not the environment that we could do a campaign. So I'm just thankful. You know, we do a campaign a year. And if we weren't able to do it, I don't know how we would have managed throughout the year. I just want to publicly say thank you to the Almighty that he held off the held off the virus for a little bit longer and allowed our organization to to uh, to run our campaign. You know, the the Mir Yeshiva, largest yeshiva in the world, they have their annual dinner. It's at the end of March, and of course, they postponed the dinner this year. But a lot of organizations are really suffering and really trying to figure out how they're going to raise the money that they need in a time like this. But also, if you've had something scheduled, uh, you know, at this time, it's 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 a it's a huge challenge. And I want to just thank the Almighty that we were able to get the campaign out uh, before everything changed. I had another interesting thought that I wanted to share. I was doing a lot of research about viruses and flus and you know H one N one. You know, there's the H and the N, which are these are these are like the linings of every virus and the number of the H and the number of the N. That's Term, determines the name. But I found something so fascinating that I have to share it. Apparently, again, I'm not a, a virologist, I'm not a physician, but this is what I've I've researched. And you correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Let me know if I'm wrong. Fact check me. Apparently, most flus, most flu viruses come from birds. But as far as we know, Humans cannot contract flu directly from birds. And the reason for that is because a virus, like we said, it's not its its own cell that infiltrates the body. It's actually a microbe that attaches to the cell of the host, but it has to latch on to what's called a receptor. There's receptors in cells that can absorb or the, the virus can latch onto. And as far as we know, there isn't a receptor in humans for avian flu for flu from birds. And therefore, it has to find some sort of speech, some, some, some middle go-between an animal or an organism through which the bird flu can latch onto and that can pass it on to humans. So apparently, the in-between animal is none other than the pig. Pigs have both human and bird flu receptors. So they're this bridge that connects us to the source, so to speak, of the flu, to the source of the impurity, if you will, and that's the birds. So you have 
The bird gets the flu, passes it to the pig, and the pig passes it to the human. And this just kind of struck me so hard. You know, the Torah is warning us that, that there's this the swine, which is the apex of impurity. And only today we know that actually this is the animal most likely to be the one to convey all kinds of viruses and flus and influenzas to humanity. I did also want to share, I saw an amazing video of the first Israeli coronavirus case of someone who completely recovered and was released from the hospital. I don't know if you've seen this. You could Google it. There was a news story about this, uh, about this, the first Israeli to be released from, from hospitalization, uh, who co- totally recovered from, from this coronavirus. It's amazing. They interview him. He's leaving the hospital and he's, he covers his eyes and on top of his lungs, he screams, Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Of course, the declaration of our allegiance to God. And then he says, the blessing, that God gave us life and God gave us vitality and God brought us to this day. I think that really epitomizes the Jewish attitude towards events like this. We believe that the virus is sent by God to send us a message, to send us some sort of lesson we have to take home. It's not there, just some sort of natural thing that just happens. That's the illusion Really, the Almighty is speaking to us, and our objective is to try to absorb the message. And we've seen a lot of different attitudes, different ideas of what we can do to improve. We've seen, generally speaking, the idea that a plague is all about indiscrimination, not viewing people as individuals. Everyone is just the same. And we saw specifically that a sexual misconduct is something which is likely to trigger that, and we speculated that when someone doesn't recognize the unique individual power that they were given by God to be a creator to some degree, when they don't acknowledge that, then something of indiscriminate, indiscriminate nature, a plague of indiscriminate nature, is unleashed against the world. We also saw that when someone counts other people and they do the census without recognizing the value of each individual, that is something which is likely to unleash the plague. And we saw stories of plagues and stories of quarantines. We saw from the greatest Jew that's alive today, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who told us that we should work on three things to avoid speaking gossip, to avoid having hubris and arrogance and boastfulness, to have humility, and to let others win. And we saw each one of these ideas connect to some of the themes of plagues and thus plague avoidance. So we have before us seven different things that we've mentioned. Generally speaking, we talked about the idea of viewing each person as an individual. Recognize the value of each individual. Uplift the individual. Recognize that every individual Jew is someone that you need to foster connection between you and God. We saw the three sins that caused the plague of Noah and the three plagues in the Torah. And they are, of course, idolatry. Let's not be enslaved to the Jew that you always were. Let's be comfortable to take the blood and post it on our doorposts. Theft. Recognize that what other people have is given to them by God, not to try to encroach on other people. Sexual misconduct, as we mentioned, that's four. And finally, the three ideas that we saw, namely, to not speak Lashon HaRa, to not speak 
to be, to be more humble and to let others win. We have seven different suggestions. My advice would be is that everyone select for themselves one of these things to think about and to work upon and create a regimen for yourself to say, I'm going to do my share. Of course, your number one responsibility is to guard your own health and the health of the people around you. But provided that you're able to maintain safety and follow the the rules and the regulations given to us by the health officials, try to help other people as much as you can, and try to take this time, these days, these weeks, whatever it may be, to pick one of these seven things that you could work on, create for yourself a regiment to work on it, and hopefully in that merit, you will be doing your share to make sure that this virus is not going to influence or it's not going to be as dangerous as potentially it could be and you're going to do your share to, to save you and your family and to save all of us and the entire world from the devastation of this pandemic. My email address again is robinwobajima.com. I am happy to take any questions, any comments, and any feedback.